0: Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Hey, good morning, friends. Welcome, welcome. Uh, My name's Tim. We're so glad and, and thankful to be worshiping with you all this morning. Um, We are going to be jumping into the scriptures together. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise a hand. One of the men and women around the room would love to get a Bible into your hand. That text will be up on the screen as well, but uh, I know sometimes it's nice to have that book in your hand. Uh, We've been in 1 Thessalonians going through a series like making our way week by week through this letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul. He, he wrote this letter to a church that he helped kind of kickstart, get going. It's his, kind of a little bit like his little baby that he loves so much. And um, we've been looking at this almost all fall now. And um, we want to see what this means for us. In fact, we're asking this question. What does it mean for us to rediscover being the church based on 1 Thessalonians here today in Portland in 2023? Last week, Weston did an amazing job of walking us through a beautiful little prayer uh, that Paul kind of prayed for us, prayed over the Thessalonians, but also for us. His prayer acts as like a hinge for this letter, really moving us from theology and the heart of God into the practical implications, those beliefs and relationships that we we live day to day. Paul wants to help us out with that. And Weston described Paul's heart in the prayer. Paul's saying, I'm about to tell you some really hard things, but before I do, I'm gonna ask that the Holy Spirit would fill you and shape your mind and give you the ears to hear. Even asking that God would strengthen or reinforce their hearts so that they could step into the things that he was about to call them to. It kind of makes you wonder what's about to be said in the text, right? And Paul asks that God would make their love increase and that they would be blameless, above reproach, and holy, aligning their hearts, their attitudes, their actions, their motives to the reality that God is creator, that God is the author of life. Weston asked this powerful question, what if I submitted my entire life My mind, my will, my sexuality, my personality. What if I submitted all that I am to you, Jesus, and you tell me where you want me to go? Truly, this is Paul's heart as he moves into today's text. Now that being said, before we jump in, there is one small uh, correction that I need to make to Weston's message. I'm glad that you're back here, buddy. I just need to make an adjustment. Uh, Less of a theological critique, it's more of an adjustment of an application that he made. Um, Just so it's clear, driving down the left that lane, (laughs) driving down, that's, that's definitely not in God's heart for you. I mean, that's contrary to all the ways of the kingdom. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just, well, I'm only kind of just kidding, but yeah. Would you please stand as we read this text? 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 1, says this. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We invite you to to move in our hearts and our minds to help us to open up our lives to you, to your way, Jesus. We want to be open to your light, to your life. Jesus, you tell us where to go, who to be, what to do. Protect us, and even now in this moment, from, from the enemy's whispers and lies. Protect us from shame. Protect us from having a wrong understanding of who you are, God. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. We love you, Jesus. And today, this morning, it's all about you. In your name we pray, amen. You guys can grab a seat. John Tyson, he's the pastor of uh, Church of the City in New York City. Uh, He was actually the one that did that really fun little intro video for us on week one. He was teaching from this passage recently, and he tells a fictional story of a Roman citizen from the time and place that this text would have been written. We're going to call him Steve, okay? Steve helps us get a sense of the culture that Paul was writing from and for, And I've adjusted it a little bit, but it goes something like this Steve is a Roman man, the head of a middle class household, which means that Steve uh, is likely married to a woman who uh, is responsible for managing his home and for having his children, his heirs, the ones who will carry his family line on, uh, and, and probably even care for and manage the home itself. But Steve also has a mistress. Uh, who he likely has known for longer and has a deeper relationship and friendship with, uh, a woman who won't share in the family line, but who he would also care for and support. Additionally, Steve has a number of household slaves. As Steve's possession, Steve can use said slaves for whatever sexual purposes he deems appropriate. They have no rights. It's Steve's call. And finally, Steve is also an active member of the local temple cult, uh, participating in regular worship, which includes temple prostitutes and worship through, you guessed it, sex. Now, imagine with me for just a moment that Steve meets a Christian, maybe even a Christian from this church in Thessalonica. And Steve has a radical encounter with the living God. Jesus literally gets a hold of Steve's heart and now Jesus, Steve's world is upside down. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment doing New Believer follow-up with Steve. <laughs> hey, Steve-o, so glad you're part of the kin- our kingdom, you're part of the community now. Um, hey, so obviously the whole temple prostitutes thing, that's like, that's definitely a no-no right? You, you, you got that, right? Yeah. Well, and also I should probably explain that like your relationship now to your slaves, it's been changed because uh, we have a completely new perspective. We see them as humans, as, as equals even, and they might even be followers of Jesus. They could be your own brothers and sisters in faith. And also, Steve, your mistress. Um, here's the thing. I know you've got all this friendship, all this relationship. You've known her for a long time, but that relationship, it's got to change. In fact, it's got to end. The monogamy in marriage means that that relationship is finished. Steve, what's more is that union that you have with your neglected wife. It's a relationship that is now defined by dying to yourself, and caring for your bride in the exact same way that Jesus cares for the church, Steve, everything has changed. What is Steve to do as he comes into the church? How does he figure out what his new life should look like? I mean, sex saturated the Roman culture. It was in the same category as eating and drinking. It was a form of entertainment, desire, self-gratification. Imagine a world so saturated by sexuality that it permeated everything. Family, work, culture, entertainment. And then and then, imagine trying to pastor a community through all of those different experiences into one of family, uh, aligning them to the way of Jesus. Um, just imagine that. Well, it's actually, it's not that hard to imagine, is it? Here's the thing. When it comes to sexuality, our society is not too different from the culture Paul wrote in. And our community here, it's not too different from the Thessalonians. Sitting in this room, our couples who are are dating, and, and they're wrestling with the shame of choices that they made this last week. Others are here from the LGBTQ community trying to figure out What does it look like to be a part of this family? There are singles in this room who wish that they were married. There's married people in this room who wish they were single. (laughs) And and, and there's others here sitting in this room who've never even considered the idea that God might actually have something to say about sex, about our sexuality. And all of us are now here to follow a 30-year-old celibate Jewish rabbi in a society that is using sex to sell us everything. What are we to do? All of that to say, welcome to church. (laughs) And I mean it, like honestly, no, no matter what your starting point is, church is not a place for people who have it all figured out. It's a place of compassion where we wrestle with the truths of Scripture together where we love people so much that we're willing to go on the journey of formation to the way of Jesus as a family. Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, to flee from sexual immorality. It's the same kind of verse that we're looking at here today in 1 Thessalonians. And he tells them, like, every other sin that you you experience, it happens outside of the body, but, but sexual sin, it messes with our insides. And, and we've been called to, to carry the Holy Spirit's presence, says Paul, into a hurting, into a broken world to bring life and healing and hope to our city, not to propagate more chaos. What's fascinating, what's really fascinating is just one chapter earlier, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul had been addressing crazy, willful sin happening inside the church in Corinth sin that even the sex cults were like, whoa. And he tells the Corinthians, deal with it because the church needs to be a place of safety from the chaos, a place of flourishing. And then he says these words, really great words, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, so important to this conversation. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Listen, friends, the church isn't the world's morality police. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The church exists like a hospital, as a place of safety from the chaos, healing for those who have been hurt. And it exists as a place of formation. Think about like going to the gym with a trainer to change, to grow. To be transformed, being guided and formed into the way of Jesus. And that is why we need passages like 1 Thessalonians 4. These scriptures, they guide us on the journey of formation, showing us what it looks like to flourish in the kingdom. Far from a list of rules, it lays out a path of wholeness and it points us to God's design for humanity. So let's jump in. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 1, says this. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority Of the Lord Jesus. I like how Paul just kind of jumps right into it right out of his prayer. He reminds the Thessalonians, yep, you've already been taught how to live the life, the kind of lives that please God. You've already been taught. It's being evidenced out as you are imitating us and being formed. Imitation had led to formation. The word live in the original language is actually the word walk. And it's a common way that Paul talks about in the New Testament over and over again about following Jesus. It's like he's saying, we're being formed into Jesus on the way, step by step, moment by moment, choice by choice. And now Paul is calling them to ramp it up. It's like that fatherly voice we talked about from a few weeks ago, like, go get him, church, you got this, go for it. And Paul tells the Thessalonians that they have known the instructions The word that's translated here is often the idea of like passing on military orders from the commander. Paul wants to be clear. These instructions are from Jesus. They're not not from Paul. They're not his ideas. He is simply passing them on. And actually, this is important. This is a really important truth for us as teachers. Um, We we need to return to this over and over again to be clear that these, these aren't the opinions of a few. Or even the idea of our church, ideas of our church. These ideas come from careful, prayerful consideration of the scriptures, a historical orthodoxy, and the story of God. Like Paul, we are responsible to simply hand on what we find in the Bible and then live our lives as a people surrendered to those truths. Paul continues in verse 3. It is God's will that you should be Sanctify. Okay, let's, let's just stop there for just a second unpack that word. Sanctification, it's not a word that we encounter very much outside the church, but it is definitely an important word inside the church, for the church. In fact, Paul uses some of the strongest language that we see in the area of obedience. It is God's will. Thus saith the Lord. Paul wants to be abundantly clear. God wants this for you. Well, what is sanctification? Well, Leon Morris, he's a commentary, uh, he has a commentary in, in Thessalonians, and, and he puts it this way. It's so good. Sanctification points to the process of which holiness is the completed state. From the moment anyone believes, he is set apart for God, set apart to be holy. In New Testament language, he's a saint. This doesn't mean that he's morally perfect, but that he is given over to God to do his will. Thus, a process has begun in which the old ways and the old habits are increasingly done away and replaced with new ways that fit the service of God. This is a long and necessary process. Here, Paul lays it down firmly that it is God's will that God's people live in God's way. That is so good. If you're one of those people that takes pictures of quote, this is a good one. It is God's will that God's people live in God's way. That is to say, God has a design, a design for us and a design for this world. Sanctification is the process that we we do to step into becoming what God has designed us to be. God's will is that we would walk in step with him and his design, it's, it's beautiful, and we're called into it for our own protection and our own good for flourishing. And there are times when this can actually be kind of easy, right? I mean, like when we show love to a person and, and, and they feel, they're feeling isolated and lonely and, and, we, and we give them the love of Jesus. And there are other times like maybe we, we show a kindness or grace for a mistake at work and a person's like, wow, thank you so much. That's, that's so beautiful of you. Times when God's way doesn't grate Against the values of our culture. But then there are times where it's more difficult, right? And there's times where, where Paul's call, it, it creates tension, and, and this is one of those places Paul is putting his finger on a topic of tension for the Thessalonians and, and for us. Paul continues in verse three, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. Okay. When the scriptures talk about sexual sexual immorality in kind of the big picture sense, it uses the word pornea. That's where we get the word pornography from. And though it's a complex word in its usage, its definition by all serious scholars is largely agreed upon. Now, whether and how we apply that today, that's the thing that's being wrestled with um, by progressive theologians and more progressive churches. But the Bible teaches this. Sexual immorality refers to any kind of sexual behavior outside of God's created path in Genesis 2. And according to Jesus, it includes both physical acts and the intentions of the heart, Matthew 5, 28. Sex, as created by God, unifies the hearts of a man and a woman into a marriage covenant, making them one flesh and unashamed, Genesis 2, verses 24 through 25. It is unique to that relationship and is to be kept holy, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Okay, let's take a deep breath. The story of the scriptures is united behind this idea. Every time we wander outside of God's initial intent for sex, there are negative consequences. Humans, especially women, objectified. Children pushed aside people fervently pursuing sexual gratification resulting in increasing relational fallout. In fact, in the biblical story, sex outside of the covenant of marriage is one of the symptoms of cultural breakdown. For our creator God, sex is not playtime or or a personal entertainment drug to help us get through another day like like alcohol or Netflix binging. It's far, far more powerful. Sex, according to God, is very good. But engaging sex, whether it's in fantasy or in function, outside of its intended union or container, has very real and ongoing consequences and implications to our relationships. In fact, that's part of what Paul is getting at with the Thessalonians when he calls them to control their own bodies. The original language has the idea of putting sex in its right container. God created us with the capacity for pleasure, but pleasure is not our purpose. We need to remember how to relate to our bodies in kingdom ways, ways that lead to flourishing and not chaos. It doesn't work to simply deny that we don't have bodies. Like, we can't just pretend that we're not human. Our ideas and our capacity for pleasure, they must be aligned to God's design. Our definition of love, it must be aligned to God's heart. We need every aspect of our humanity to align to the kingdom. The marriage covenant designed by God is the only container strong enough to carry sexual union. Sex was created to strengthen that marriage bond. And the marriage covenant was created to protect society from the very real biological, hormonal, psychological and relational consequences of that powerful bond. Let me say that again. Sex was created to strengthen the marriage bond, but the marriage covenant itself, it was created to protect society from the very real biological, hormonal, psychological, and relational consequences of that powerful bond. There's so much in our sex-saturated society that has become normal to us. And billboards advertising affairs Porn, accessible 24-7, our own version of temple prostitution through app-based hookups. And of course, naked bike rides. I mean, what's that all about, right? Like ancient Roman society, our city glories in feeding our lusts shaping a people who are unable to even find satisfaction with the real humans in front of them anymore, needing just a little bit more, taking just a little bit more. Really, the the NIV translation of void is way too weak. It's more like Paul saying, like, you need to cut this out of your life. Remove it completely. Paul is calling the Thessalonians to to turn away from the cultural expressions, things that would have seemed normal to them. A mistress, temple prostitutes, lusting after the pagan images and turn to God to respond to his holiness like we were just celebrating a moment ago in worship by becoming holy and to honor those who are around us for who they are, not by what we can take from them. And then Paul, he carries that idea forward into the next verse, verse six. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. I wanna return just a moment to that original story about Steve, and I wanna replay it with a slightly different lens. Let's imagine that Steve wasn't the one who became a Christian. Let's imagine for just a moment that it was his wife, or maybe one of the slaves. Imagine with me their story being changed, turned upside down, that the consequences of, of perspective change and lifestyle change and living in a new home and a culture, imagine what they would wrestle through Steve's wife or slave worshiping in church a few times a week, finding the safety and protection of this new family. Out there represents pain, objectification, dehumanization, neglect. But what what is the church to that person? Well, Paul says it's the place where people don't take advantage of each other. It's the place where we honor each other, where we love each other. The church as family becomes a safe place that people can connect like a hospital for the hurting, a home for those living in the sexual war zone that is our society. And this is the reason and part of the reason why Paul brings up the idea of punishment. He's telling the church, there is no room for predators Okay, now to be clear, there is a difference between discipline and punishment, okay? The scriptures tell us that God actually disciplines those he loves. In fact, discipline is an evidence of God's love. Our process of becoming means that there's going to be times of painful pruning, discipline, to help us become all that God has called us to be. God's spirit is walking with us through our change, and in the, in the very fact that we feel conviction is proof, it's evidence of God's love. But there is also punishment. The church is to be a place of care. Wolves are not welcome. Hate is not welcome. Paul tells the Thessalonians that those who are there to hurt should be prepared for punishment. Just this last week, I was made aware of another Christian leader being accused of sexual immorality. A leader in a key organization. The fall of recent leaders in the Big C Church has been both heartbreaking and infuriating. So many of these stories, they start in the same place. A lack of accountability, a lack of integrity, where the inside doesn't match the outside. The church is not a place of moral perfection. If it were, none of us would be here. But it should be a place where people can come and live honestly and openly with accountability and life and love to be transformed, a place where we can be changed, where we can, be, we can undo things and remake things, a place where even, even wolves can become sheep. That's the way the church should be. And I just wanna take a moment, if that has been your story, if you have been hurt sexually by someone in the church, specifically of someone who's maybe a leader in the church, I am so, so, so sorry. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Please know that we are fighting for this to be a safe place fighting for accountability, fighting for integrity. We want this to be a home, a home that's protected. That said, I have so much hope for this next generation, this next season. As I'm watching, literally, as a younger generation is rising up and giving themselves to Jesus in a way that hasn't happened for decades, and I'm watching as Jesus himself, through his Holy Spirit, purifies his church. We can do better. We are, by God's grace, doing better. Shining light in dark places. Creating paths for people to come for healing. Because that, that is what's on offer. Healing, restoration, no more shame. The resurrection power to undo the past and remake a new future. Paul wraps these ideas up. Verse seven. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul challenges the Thessalonians and us pointing at the same question that Weston asked last week. Do we really, really want Jesus to be Lord of every part of us? Is that what we really want? Are are, are we really saying, Lord, have all of me? I want all of you. What would it look like to submit our entire life, identity, thoughts, feelings, sexuality to Jesus and to let Him tell us where to go, who to be, what to do, guided by the scriptures and his Holy Spirit. What if we let the creator be the guide? Well, that would look a lot more like surrender, wouldn't it? Lives surrendered. We'd we'd go through the process of cutting hate out of our being. We would become a people overflowing with love. We would stop lying to each other and trying to mislead each other. And we would instead speak truth and love and life over each other. We would generously place the needs of our brother or sister in front of our own. And we would cut sexuality, sexual immorality out of our lives. Trusting. Trusting that God is a good father. Trusting that he has given us his truth and his scripture. And that it's him who made us and sex in the first place. And that's what flourishing in the kingdom looks like. Flourishing in the kingdom, it, it looks like us trusting the father's kindness. Trusting that he's good that he loves you, that he knows you, that he's trustworthy, trusting his words, the things that he's said, the things that he's spoken over us, trusting his creative design. And it looks, it looks like receiving, receiving our identity from the Holy Spirit, not, not from our culture, not from our community, not even from our own heart and mind, receiving from God, God, who do you say I am? That's what I want. And it looks like submitting. Submitting to the way of Jesus with every part of our being. Here's the thing. I I know this is a huge conversation in our society. In fact, it might be the conversation in our society right now. And the truth is, there have been times when the church has, has entered that dialogue well and then there's been times that we have not entered it well. And it can be difficult for us people. We, we, we tend to get muddled up in our words sometimes. But the church exists for Steve's. It exists as a place where life in the kingdom it, it can be worked out in real time, step by step. Remember, walking the walk, going forward. It, it looks like taking all of us to Jesus, like Steve did. And, and it looks like a place, it exists as a place for Steve's wife, maybe his slaves, like a place where they can find safety, a place where they can find healing, a place where they can find home. The church exists as a place of formation and family. That's why we're here. As Paul, he's he's not telling us to go get ourselves cleaned up before, before we come through the doors. This isn't like your grandma's front room, right? No, he's saying, don't do this alone. Don't do this alone. Remember, family is a vehicle of formation. If you are here and you are wrestling under the weight of shame, of things that you have done in your past, or maybe even this week, please hear me. Please hear me. Don't wrestle alone. And if you're here in this room and you're wrestling under the weight and the guilt and the shame of things that were done To you, don't wrestle alone. This is what family is for. We're here for each other, to lean on each other, to open up to each other, to be a part of each other's transformation process. That's why we're all sitting here, shoulder to shoulder in this big room. We don't do this alone. Find someone, even today, If you're in that space, I encourage you, just grab one of the staff members, grab one of the elders around the room or maybe one of their wives and just have a conversation. Friends, shame isolates. Jesus, he enfolds. Don't let your past determine your future. There are a few resources that I'd like to point to. I realize how big of a conversation this is, and we really, we can't tackle it all today, but there's a few places I'd like to send you. First, um, a few books. Uh, if you're a reader, I encourage you, um, there's this book by Nancy Percy called Love Thy Body. Uh, it's an excellent read. It's about the kind of, kind of the biological and human aspects of our, of our sex society that we live in and what's happening to us, how we got here, what the implications are to us as humans. The next book is by Carl Truman, it's called Strange New World. It's a great book and it kind of more lays out the history of the path that took us to where we are. It's really good uh, for helping us understand how, not only how we got here but who we are in the midst of it and what our purpose should be. And then last but not least is an excellent book called The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Valotis. I Honestly, this book is about way more than just sexuality, but there's an entire section on what sexual formation looks like. And I'd encourage you just to give it a read. This one is, this is like an easy read, but I encourage you to, to jump into it. Also, um, if you're here and you are struggling under the weight of maybe some addiction in your life, uh, or, or maybe you're just trying to figure out how to deal with addiction in another person's life, in the area of sexuality, I want to point you to uh, 423 Men. 423 Communities, it's a great, a great organization. It was actually started here in this church and is now all around the country. It's got great resources for, for literally pulling people into community to help them wrestle through sexuality. And then last, um, there's this, uh, the, the church that we've been taking and connecting with here, Church of the City, has a fantastic uh, whole section on dealing with sexual formation. Bunch of great resources. A bunch of um, podcasts, podcasts, And videos to to watch and learn it can help you as you're kind of exploring and trying to get your arms around this gigantic issue. Now, if you want all of those resources, go to JesusChurch.org, connect, and there's a link that will take you to all those places. I encourage you to do it. Now, I want to end in this place. It's a heavy message. It's a tough one for us to wrestle with in the midst of the culture that Jesus has placed us in. And I want to, in, kind of in, in the, the vein of examining ourselves before we take the bread and cup, I want to take a moment to just take some deep breaths and reflect on some questions. So if you would, you can go and close up your books and your Bible, and maybe just even sit there. If it's, if it's helpful for you to sit there with your hands open and just even close your eyes. I'll just read this question, a couple questions out to you as we examine ourselves, just ask yourself this question. Do I really want all that God has for me? We brush over that question so quickly. There's so much assumption in there as if maybe I already have it or maybe it's impossible. or. But the Christian journey is one of giving over more and more of ourselves to him. Do I really want it? Do I really want all that God has for me? Have I maybe gotten a little too content with where I'm at? Or maybe I'm just shy because the culture I live in, man, I know this creates resistance. Jesus has all of himself on offer. Do we want him? Second question, is there a part of my life that God is calling me to trust him with right now? Even as I sit in this conversation, as I look at my own life, maybe I don't struggle with any sort of overt sexual sin in my life, but there are places that I have not entrusted to Jesus. And he's like, it's time. Is there some part of you She's saying, like, I, "I want that. You need to trust me with your reputation. You need to trust me with your relationship with your son. You need to trust me with your health. last question is there something I need to let go of in Paul's words to cut out of my life in order to live submitted to Jesus to his way is there something that pops right up to the top of the list and maybe it's in an area of sexual formation maybe it's something else but God is saying it's time to cut that out to give it to me once and for all. Jesus, we just acknowledge that this is your church. We are your people. And when we try to do this human thing all by ourselves, we just end up bungling it all up, Lord. We need you. We want life that is really life. We wanna flourish. We want hope. We wanna be able to be a part of a broken society but to not be so broken. Bring healing, we pray, Jesus. Bring your resurrection power and move in our midst Lord Jesus, give us all that you have for us. We love you. We love you. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.